The Restless Heart Podcast, Episode 5, Intercommunion. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Hello, and welcome to the Restless Heart Podcast. My name is David, and you probably already realize that I'm alone in this episode. Nessa has been really slammed at work this week, so we haven't been able to meet up to record. So rather than skip a week, I thought I'd record a solo episode. Also, you might wonder why there wasn't an episode last week, part two of Is There Life Before Marriage? We did actually record an episode, but GarageBand decided to garble all of Nessa's audio, so unfortunately we had to ditch the entire episode. We'll re-record it next week. As for what's been keeping me busy this week, I've been preparing to launch a new podcast, The Eagle and Child, where I sit down with my friend Matt and we work our way chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I'm aiming to have it launched before the end of the month, so please keep an eye out for that. So since I'm here by myself today, I thought I'd speak on the subject of intercommunion. A while back, a friend went to a Catholic conference together with a Protestant friend. And being a Catholic event, there was, of course, the celebration of the Eucharist. And when the time for Mass came, the non-Catholic was rather upset that she couldn't go and receive the Eucharist. She couldn't do this because, under ordinary circumstances, the Catholic Church doesn't allow non-Catholics to receive Holy Communion. This is a huge topic, but in this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the things that I say when a non-Catholic asks me about why they can't receive communion within the Catholic Church. Now, this is a very sensitive subject, so it's got to be handled delicately, since it pertains to a family matter. It's an issue between brothers and sisters in the Christian faith. And a real careful balance, I think, is needed here to affirm the things that unite all Christians, but at the same time to present the fullness of the Catholic teaching. To do otherwise would be a disservice to everyone. So if you are a non-Catholic and listening to this episode, I'd like you to know that I'm recording this podcast in the hopeful anticipation of a day when all Christians can gather around the same altar and finally be reunited in the sacramental bonds of unity. And I'm sure on that day, heaven is going to be rejoicing. Now, once upon a time, I didn't actually agree with the Catholic teaching on who can receive communion. I didn't believe in a closed communion, as it's sometimes called. And this was during my rather anti-Catholic phase. And during that time, I was rather puzzled by the Catholic teaching, which stipulated that, firstly, non-Catholics couldn't receive communion if they attended Mass, and secondly, that Catholics shouldn't receive communion at a non-Catholic service. It seemed to me to be cold-hearted and elitist to deny my Protestant friends access to the Eucharist if they were visiting my parish. Aren't we all Christians, after all? And this particularly stood in stark contrast to the welcoming invitation to communion, which I often heard when I visited non-Catholic congregations. During this time, I was attending a Protestant church, and on the fairly rare occasions when the Lord's Supper was celebrated, I did choose to receive communion. I knew that Catholic teaching said that I shouldn't, but I didn't really care, and I did it anyway. However, I started to reassess my position on intercommunion 
after attending one particular communion service at a Protestant church. As communion was about to begin, the pastor offered an invitation. He said something like, we'd now like to welcome you all to communion, whether you belong to this particular church or whether you're visiting from somewhere else, even if it's another denomination. Now at this point, I was really happy. This invitation really pleased me. At least here we weren't having those silly rules about Holy Communion, which I heard about in the Catholic Church. However, what he said next rather unsettled me. Because he went on to say, even if you're not yet baptized, if you're moving towards the Lord, if you're moving in the direction of faith in Jesus, please come up and receive. Now, I thought it was great that they were opening up communion to Christians from other denominations. But to those who weren't yet Christians, to those who weren't yet baptized, wasn't that, you know, a bit too much? It felt, for want of a better word, sacrilegious. But on what basis did I make that distinction? And that morning, I remember I was actually playing in the worship band. And from my vantage point at the front of the church, I could see everyone coming up for communion. And I felt really conflicted. And this event set into motion for me a re-examination of my opinion concerning the Eucharist, communion, and the teaching of the Catholic Church. Now, when I started reading the works of the early church, I was surprised to find out that almost as soon as we hear about the Eucharist, we're told that not just anyone can receive it. A few weeks ago, in an earlier episode, I mentioned St. Justin Martyr when we were talking about the mass of the early Christians. And we're going to return to him again today, because in about AD 150, he wrote the following. This food we call the Eucharist, and no one is allowed to partake, but he who believes that our doctrines are true, who has been washed with the washing for the remission of sins and rebirth, and who is living as Christ has enjoined. In those few brief words, Justin describes the necessary conditions for receiving the Eucharist. You have to be united in belief. He says, those who believe that our doctrines are true, you have to be baptized. He says, those who have been washed with the washing for the remission of sins and rebirth. Because in the early church, they thought that baptism actually washed away sin, the Catholic teaching today. But that's another topic for another time. So united belief, baptized, and I'm going to call this free from serious sin. Justin describes it as living as Christ has enjoined. Now, there's much more that we could say about the early church and the Eucharist, and I'm going to be talking about another early church father in a little bit. But for now, I think it suffices to conclude that the early church did, in fact, place very specific restrictions on the reception of the Eucharist. So what do I say when a non-Catholic asks me why he or she can't come up with me to receive the Eucharist at Mass? I tend to focus on two key issues. The first one is what are you receiving? Or rather, whom? The first issue is about the Eucharist itself. When an evangelical wishes to receive communion at Mass, what does he think he is receiving? Again, let's go back to Justin Martyr, because he describes the Catholic belief. He says, We do not receive these as common bread and drink. For Jesus Christ our Saviour, made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation, Likewise, we've been taught that the food blessed by the prayer of his word is the flesh and blood of Jesus who was made flesh. Catholics believe that the Eucharist really is Jesus' body and blood. Now, in a future episode, we're going to look at another early church father 
St. Ignatius of Antioch. But for the sake of this episode, I would just like to offer a small quotation from his epistle to the Smyrnians. He's speaking about a heretical group that was causing trouble with the church. He says, They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his loving kindness raised from the dead. St. Justin Martyr, St. Ignatius of Antioch, both in the second century, attest to the Catholic belief that the bread and wine become Jesus' body and blood. Most Protestants don't hold to this belief. They reduce the Eucharist to simply bread and wine and some symbolism. As I've mentioned in another episode, it's very difficult when we're talking about Protestants because there's such a wide range of belief. But I would say for your typical evangelical Protestant, this would be their point of view. So even if the Protestant disagrees with the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist, hopefully he can understand why the church would want to prevent the possibility of people treating it as simple bread and simple wine rather than the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church denies communion to non-Catholics as an act of love in an effort to protect them. In 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The Catholic Church takes St. Paul's grave warning extremely seriously. And just from this short extract, we can see why Holy Communion is a serious issue. This is why Catholics aren't allowed to receive Eucharist while in mortal sin. Receiving the body and blood of the Lord in an incorrect manner has serious, serious consequences. If the Catholic Church is right, only if, if the Catholic Church is right about the Eucharist, then surely receiving the Eucharist as though it were just simple bread and simple wine would be treating the holiest thing on the planet without sufficient reverence. If the Catholic Church wasn't vigilant in her duties, she would be putting many souls at risk. So that's the first issue. What are you actually receiving in communion? Now, sometimes I'll explain this to a non-Catholic and they'll respond, but I believe in the Eucharist. I believe that Jesus is truly present there. Now, we could quibble over the exact meaning of what we mean by truly present, consubstantiation, transubstantiation, etc. But it's important to see that belief in the real presence is only part of the reason why the Catholic Church has closed communion. And now we come to the second issue. Although different Christian denominations have much in common, their unity is imperfect. And until we are united fully in belief, we can't have sacramental communion. Because Holy Communion isn't just a means of making us one, it's also the sign that we are one. If you think of the beams of a cross, you have the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. Holy Communion has a vertical dimension, we commune with God, but it also has a horizontal dimension, meaning that we commune with each other. In receiving the Eucharist, I am saying that I believe what the church teaches and that I am entirely one with my brothers and sisters who are receiving with me. The Catholic Church believes that it is disingenuous to share Holy Communion with those who don't believe as we do. 
I've got an analogy which I drew from Theology of the Body, and I haven't heard this comparison made elsewhere, so if it's a flawed comparison, I entirely take the blame. We can lie with our bodies. For example, if I sell you a car, and I know it's a dud, I know you're going to get 100 yards down the road, and the engine's going to fall out. If, as we're making the deal, I shake your hand, I've lied with my body. I've tried to communicate honesty and goodwill, which I just don't have. Likewise, if I sleep with my girlfriend, I have lied with my body. With my body, I've said, I give myself to you completely. But this can't be true if it's done outside of marriage. Only once a covenant bond has been established can the marital sign be fully expressed in an authentic way. And so, somewhat analogously, if I receive communion and I don't believe what the Catholic Church teaches, if I don't believe what everyone else around me believes, I'm lying with my body. I'm saying that we're one when we're not. My body and reality don't correspond. When I receive Holy Communion without being in communion with the church, my amen is rendered hollow rather than hallowed. On very rare occasions, I encounter some Protestants who say that not only do they believe in the real presence, but they also believe in everything that the Catholic Church teaches. So since this is the case, why would I now object to them receiving the Eucharist? But to me, this kind of begs the question, if you believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches, why not be Catholic? I saw a news item a while back when a number of non-Catholics received communion in the Catholic Church, and when they were asked about it afterwards, their defense was, we believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches. And I can't help but question, is that really true though? I mean, do you believe everything? Even the teachings concerning who may receive the Eucharist? Clearly not. Do you believe what the Catholic Church teaches about going to confession before receiving the Eucharist? It's funny, actually. I've known many Protestants who have told me that they feel perfectly entitled to go and receive communion in the Catholic Church whenever they want. But I've yet to ever hear anyone tell me that they feel entitled to go to confession as well. So in response to this objection, I like to give an, another analogy. If someone visits me at home, I might ask them to take off their shoes. I might ask them to refrain from smoking or not to go into a particular room. Now, these seem like reasonable requests. After all, my house, my rules. Likewise, if a non-Catholic attends Mass, certain things are requested, including that church teaching is followed concerning the reception of Holy Communion. One would hope that non-Catholic visitors would be able to comply with the house rules of the host. And if a person did truly believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches, surely that person would want to enroll in RCIA come into full communion with the Catholic Church, and then receive the Eucharist. Personally, I really, really want us to all be in communion once again. And I think that'll only come about through two things. Firstly, that God's Spirit gives us humility and wisdom to speak to one another as brother and sister, and to repent and to ask for forgiveness from each other and from God for the damage that we've caused to the body of Christ. And secondly, through open communication and dialogue concerning our differences. This is the only way that unity will ever actually be achieved. We can't just sweep our theological differences under the rug and then pretend that we're fully united when we're not. 
The Catholic Church doesn't restrict communion to be mean or to be nasty, but for love of all people concerned. The Eucharist is a serious matter for Catholics. Not only that, a shared Eucharist is an expression of unity that has to correspond with reality. I know this is a hard saying, and honestly, during my Protestant years and in the early months of my return, I really struggled with it. However, I eventually came to see that the Catholic Church was doing the right thing in delaying communion until authentic communion can be restored. So if you're a Protestant who sometimes attends Mass, I'd encourage you to make a spiritual communion during the time when everyone else is going up to receive the Lord. On the occasions when I can't receive Holy Communion, this is what I do myself. Here's one of the common spiritual communion prayers. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the Most Holy Sacrament. I love you above all things and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you are already there and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. This time of communion is also a really good time to pray for the unity of the church. And on the occasions when I'm visiting a non-Catholic congregation and they have Holy Communion, this is what I spend my time doing, praying for unity. Praying that Jesus' words towards the end of John's Gospel, when he's praying to the Father, would be fulfilled that they may all be one, that all Christians will be united together as closely as the Father and the Son. And because of our unity and our love for one another, that the world would come to believe. So it's been a rather strange episode, just talking to myself and not having Nessa here. She'll be back next week. And in the meantime, this weekend, I will be painting a monastery. I'm hanging out with the San Diego Eastern Orthodox Young Adults and there's a monastery a little north of San Diego where we sometimes go and help out. So until next week, please like, share, subscribe. Go and write us a review in iTunes or Google Play. You can contact us on the website, restlesspilgrim.net, or tweet us at David and Nessa. You made us feel self, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. All you holy angels and saints, pray for us.